Patrick Martins, founder of Heritage Radio Network, CEO of Heritage Foods USA, and the man responsible for bringing slow food to the United States, has written a new book. Heritage Radio's chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot, sat down with Patrick to discuss The Carnivore's Manifesto, published by Hachette. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I am joined by Patrick Martins, who is the head honcho and brains and brilliance behind Heritage Radio Network, of which let me start out by saying, Patrick, I am truly honored to be part of the Heritage family and that I get to come here every week is still great. Like, I, I'm not over the thrill that I get to be part of this. Well, you know, I'm only head honcho in that I am on the board of directors, of which you are also on. I know. So we're head honchos, because the real <laughs> head honcho is the executive director, Aaron Fairbanks. Aaron Fairbanks is the, the real head honcho, and but that I... That I get to commune with you guys at all is really is is super cool. I feel like not that we're that communal when you walk through on Tuesdays when we're doing sales, but <laughs> right? So and any other day we're much more social. So we're here specifically to talk about your book, The Carnivore's Manifesto, which is uh, co-written with Mike Edison, published by Little Brown and Company. So on Tuesdays when I have my show, I walk through and everyone says, "Can't talk, cut pack." Yes. So tell tell me what is cut pack. I've well, sort of pieced it together. I always like to say that the radio station was started from the ground up. And if you really think about it, because Heritage Foods was the main sponsor of the radio station for its first couple of years, uh, Heritage's profits came from farmers because we are meat distributors, Heritage Foods USA. So we do 200 pigs a week, which comes out to about 40,000 pounds of pasture-raised heritage pork. But seasonally, we also do other things like lamb and goat and goat-tober, one of the projects that Aaron Fairbanks started, turkeys. Uh, we do seven or 8,000 of those. So, you know, we do a lot of extra weight uh, during special holidays, special seasons. But uh, that is kind of the engine that powered the radio station. So um, when you come in, we're trying to generate, uh, we're trying to really stay concentrated to make sure we do not oversell any cuts of the 200 pigs and that we're getting all 120 chefs' orders from around the country and that it's all correct and that our distributors know exactly what's coming and that they know what breeds they got because we sell different breeds of pork and they have different chefs have different cuts that they like different breeds for based off the fat cap or whatever so um it's a very concentrated effort and it all has to happen on tuesday because of course on wednesday morning there'll be 35 people at the slaughterhouse being like where do we send stuff and how do we cut these animals so where are these 200 pigs being raised they are being raised uh well we started heritage foods uh based off of where rare breed associations existed because our whole thing was the slow food idea of preserving rare breeds, an arc of taste, eat them to save them. Um, and so we couldn't just raise commodity animals for that project. It had to be the old lines of whether it be the Berkshire pig that can trace its genetic backs to the 1600s or the red wattle pig, which can go all the way back to the 16th century in New Caledonia. Then it came to New Orleans and populated the backyards there. Um, you know, and turkeys come from different breeds and different 
different cultures, really. So uh, it's important that we save those. So those breed associations just happen to be in Kansas, Missouri. So we started there. We also do work with some local farms, but uh, there are not as many rare breeds here, surprisingly. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot, um, I teach in a lot of different capacities, and I encounter a lot of really well-meaning vegetarians. Mm -hmm. And I often use the argument that you just said, that if it wasn't for humans cultivating pigs as a food product, they wouldn't exist at all. And so how how does the demand on the system actually promote these animals' lives at all? Well, I mean, the... Vegetarians are entitled to be vegetarians. I mean, if you don't like meat uh, for whatever reason, that's fine. Uh, No one is being told to eat meat in my book, The Carnivore's Manifesto, or, you know, by any normal person. You have to eat meat. That's crazy. But um, what I do think is, you know, my only issue with vegetarians is those who say you shouldn't eat meat. One shouldn't. And that's... uh, I mean, a little cuckoo bird. I mean, it's it's well-intentioned, perhaps, but it's just not realistic. And so what I love about the radio network, what I love about the way I learned to see things get done at Chez Panisse, uh, I studied with Alice Waters for a while, um, Carl Petrini with Slow Food, you have to do. You have to do something. You can't just talk about it. And so we knew that there were all these problems on factory farms. So what do we do? We started a business that was going to speak to the opposite end of what factory farms do. Aaron Fairbanks comes on and is like, I'm looking for work. What can I do? Give me a fun project. I was like, launch a huge goat project throughout New England that takes male goats from dairy farms and, uh, you know, sells them to high-end restaurants in October. And sure enough, she did it. A year later, there were 12 farms and 500 goats and uh, 80 restaurants in New York, each buying a goat for Goatober. That kind of active energy of, you know, we say doers, you know, it's got to be a better word for it, but just active people that throw themselves into the field of action and play and and launch things. And, you know, they risk failing, but... um, you know, I just think that with the chef community at all these restaurants and so many young chefs caring about their ingredients, there's just a lot of different opportunities for agriculture, you know, right in the wave of the celebrity chef. Can I ask you if you know what was happening to the male goats before Goatober? Well, the most dramatic is that they killed them. We love saying that because it gets, uh, you know, like Republicans, it uh, stirs <laughs> the pot, you know, it's like throwing a bomb. And sure enough, sometimes that does happen. Um, But I think most of the time they're sold into a commodity system at a young age. And commodity systems, as you know, cut so many corners. It's the path of least resistance. Um, And so I think those animals end up suffering. And do they end up as dog and cat food? Um, no, I think that there is a lot of goat consume more than we imagine in ethnic restaurants and all that. But uh, we at Heritage Foods has found that, uh, you know, it's a real challenge for us to go to some of those ethnic restaurants and try to convince them to spend maybe a dollar or two pound per pound more for a goat that we're talking about. But it does exist. And slowly we are making inroads into Prospect Heights and uh purple yam but it it is always a challenge to try to convince uh you know the commodity market to give space to the animals and let them interact and have access to the outdoors and of course what's almost sad is that these male goats are being plucked from the nicest farms in the world you know dairies in vermont Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. being sold into you know some feedlot perhaps in new jersey right and 
you know, I met Erin actually at one of those beautiful farms up at um, Farm Camp for Food Professionals back when mm-hmm. I actually grew up on a small family farm, but I snuck onto that trip anyway because uh-huh. I really wanted to go. And that's how I met Erin in the first place. Oh, wow. And... It was fascinating. I mean, it was great to go, but it was fascinating to see New York City-based food writers and restaurateurs mm-hmm. and chefs who really had never witnessed what it was that they were selling in the city yes. to their consumers. And that was such a valuable experience. Well, when we started Heritage Foods in 2004, uh, we went out to Kansas with Mark Ladner, who at the time was the chef of Lupa. But he was about to go open Del Posto. We went with Zach Allen, who opened... Vitali and Bastianich restaurants in Asia, Singapore, uh, Vegas. He also started Otto. And then Jason Denton and Steve Connaughton, who was also a chef at Lupa. And they got to Kansas and they saw about eight breeds of pigs. And they were like, we're almost embarrassed to say we did not know, even though, you know, that there are all these breeds of pigs, even though it's the foundation of our restaurant menu. You know, we knew pasture raised or not. Uh, but, you know, we did not know that there were 30 breeds of pigs in the U.S. So that was in 2004. So, And you tell a great story in the Carnivore's Manifesto about that trip and how they decide. how You're given the opportunity to, not, to get the deliveries right, not fuck it up. And right. then they'll continue to buy for you. Tell that story. Well, Lupa, uh, Mark Ladner said, um, I know you're a year away because that's how long it'll take all the pigs to grow and then start to be ready consistently. But once you can get that going, Lupa will buy all the shoulders from you. And that'll be uh, your test restaurant for our restaurant group. And so, sure enough, when I pulled up on the very first delivery in an unrefrigerated U-Haul, they were like, this is never going to last. This farmer is raising all these animals for nothing because he won't be able to pull the deliveries through. But thanks to uh, this girl, Sarah, who I made deliveries with, and Aaron Fairbanks, who I made deliveries with, we were able to keep the pork really cold, even in the summer. And then eventually we graduated to Pat LaFrieda Meats, who is a very, very good friend, and I really respect uh, the way he runs his meat business. And, uh, you know, he allows us to use his trucks, 18, 20 trucks, to make deliveries into the restaurant. So we're still the distributors. We're still the ones that talk with the accounts. But we get can get deliveries to all five boroughs six days a week. Pretty unprecedented. And trucking, by the way, is the reason, along with slaughterhouses, why, you know, there is a, a bottleneck in, in the meat world, why more people aren't starting meat farms, why more meat farms are not expanding, why more children, young kids are not getting into the meat business from the agricultural end is, is those two things, slaughterhouses and having 28 trucks or whatever I said, 20 trucks, I forget how many he has, 24 trucks delivering six days a week. At over $100,000 a piece. That's a huge investment. And so let's talk... Not, about- not the pork. No, the truck. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit more expensive. We might get there one day, but we're not there yet. The slaughterhouse was part of... When I was at farm camp with Erin, they took us to a slaughterhouse that hadn't opened yet, and they had been um, a... What do you call it when you paint cars? Uh, glass, graffiti. Gra- graffiti, right. Uh, and they realized there was some, so much money to be made in the slaughterhouse, and they had the space, and they were already dressing deer for hunters that they mm. went ahead and turned it in. We're going through the process of turning it into a USDA facility. Mm. So one of the things that I learned on that trip that I had no idea was that you have to pay the salary and the housing of a USDA inspector who's mm-hmm. going to be on your floor. That's a huge burden for a small yeah. You know, not ideas. housing. Well, housing in the office. You don't have to pay for his rent. 
But you have they have to like be able yes. to live nearby. So like, oh that one. I yeah. grew up on the East End of Long I Island, so it's like you you're not paying their you're not literally paying their rent, but you have to like you couldn't open it. Figure it out yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's all the reason that one of the chapters in the Carnivores Manifesto was about the importance of working in groups, and certainly you know that's very daunting for one person, but might not be for four businesses. So yeah, but out on Long Island, it's those that weird place where. I'm amazed that anything is affordable in Long Island because it adds about 40 cents a pound to deliver from Kansas City to Manhattan versus New Jersey just because they have to go over that bridge. Wow. Much less Long Island where they have to necessarily go through the tunnel or whatever, you know, and then all of a sudden that Long Island with and then they have to come <laughs> right back. I mean, things are much more expensive there, but it never really struck me how much more expensive or why until I learned about how difficult it is to get 18-wheelers in and out of that place. Right. And, they, and the running joke is they call it Long Island for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, uh, one of the places that I teach is at NYU, and I know that you went to Tisch School of Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. So what did you want to be when you grew up that brought you to performing arts school? Well, I guess I had always liked... Uh, it wasn't performing arts. It just was performance studies. It was a curriculum, uh, a discipline invented by a few professors in, I think, the late 1970s. Um, like Richard Schechner was the name of one. Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, who was like a mentor to me, was one. Um, then there was another gentleman, uh, Brooks McNamara. And they basically looked at everyday life as a form of theater. So uh, whether you're talking about the medicine men in like the 18th century or Buffalo Bill and those touring troops and circus, there was a performance. There were scripts going on there. Um, They looked at uh, baseball games or the Olympic games, and there was a kind of relationship between spectators and athletes. There was this liminal space they called that was like betwixt and between, you know, the stage and the actor and the and the participants. And I always liked that show, Jerry, you know, a Seinfeld show, and that also to me was kind of reading into the scripts of people and personalities. And I mean, basically, at the core performance studies is that you have these behavioral strips that you have acted already in your head so when someone says describe the carnivores manifesto i'm usually re-performing strips like in the old editing room that they would cut them before digital you know non-linear editing you know you would cut it and it would fall to the floor those types of strips and you piece them together in different ways and combine them in different ways but essentially most of the time you are reenacting something so i always that always struck me as powerful because I didn't always think that it was uh, Freud was right or anthropologists or sociologists. They were right sometimes. But um, so so can performance studies hopefully be sometimes right about how the world works. When did, when you graduated, what was your plan? What did, were you going to be a teacher? Were you going to be a critic? Um, no, no, not a critic. But uh, I would remain critical, but not officially, not in any official capacity. Um, I was basically just uh, thinking that performance studies was an interesting lens through which to view all things. So it didn't really matter. It's whenever an opportunity presented itself. So, um, you know, when I met Carla Petrini, who was the founder of Slow Food, that was the opportunity, and no one was there yet. You know, no one had learned about them, really, and so there was a true opportunity to do something historic and great. 
That seems like such a mellow way of approaching life. Like, I'm going to wait and see what comes to me. Well, I'm a white heterosexual male <laughs> born and raised in New York City's Upper East Side. So, so you knew you were going to be yeah, okay. I did not have money. I never have money. But I did certainly have supreme confidence. Plus, I was always very modest. I was very, you know, when I left uh, school, I... I when I left Vassar, you know, I had no plan, and I, you know, I found a job right away as a translator. Then I worked at a bakery for a long time, and as a waiter, you know, I never really looked to uh, see things the way people do, the way they view money and where you need to be. I mean, I see kids that are like 24 years old that are panicked because they don't know where they should be or how it should be, and it's really all wrong. The way the news and parents, I think, deal with it. You know, until you're 30, you mean nothing. It doesn't matter how sophisticated you are on social media, you're still don't, nothing you do, good or bad, is gonna really be counted until you're 30. And you know, sure, sure enough, there are people that do miracles other time, you know, very at very young ages, but I mean, I think, for the most part, you can take your foot off the metal, you know, pedal to the metal just, you know, in your early 20s. But There is such a culture of, ex- and I think it is because of social media, where young people feel like if you haven't made it by 30, mm-hmm. you're over. Like, you yeah. missed the boat. But you don't have enough going on and not enough experiences. You don't have enough of accumulated behavior strips to even know how to react to things. You don't know how to lead. You know, even if you're leading a garbage truck uh, down 3rd Avenue to pick up the garbage, you need to know how to maneuver, how to deal with people. That takes tetwar. You know, it takes knowledge built on knowledge built on knowledge. So some so you, people have it right away, but... But they're, the, like you said, the exception, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm raising, like you. Like you. I'm a very young age. You're kicking ass. <laughs> I, you were 10 years old. You already knew you would be uh, successful on radio. You know, I mentioned, uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, industriousness is one of the things mm-hmm. that you look for in people. And I learned in third grade that Emily means industriousness. Does it? And that really struck me as a little kid. Like, I felt like... Yeah. Yes, that's accurate. I always knew we were connected yeah. somehow. <laughs> when I got when I read that, I was like, "Oh, I have to make sure I remember." No, to there's that definitely up. a modesty about you and a humbleness, you know, because yeah, you, yeah, you're dynamic and you do all these things. You're creative and yet you still keep it tight, you know, which is nice. Yeah, contained. You know, I come from my both my parents raised food, and my dad was a commercial fisherman, and mm-hmm. it was very feast or famine. And then I moved to New York City, and I was never going home. Like mm-hmm. I was going to make it. And I just learned how to hustle at a young age. And hustle and be humble. I learned in Charlotte's Web. My son Max loves Charlotte's Web. That being humble is very important. I think that saved his life. That you yeah. wrote humble. The Can I confess to you? I have never read Charlotte's Web because I'm concerned I'm going to sob from the first couple of words through the entire thing. But it's very easy to make me cry. Um, no, it's a hopeful one. It's it's a hopeful movie. It's not so sad. The spider dies, but whatever. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Patrick. She, she has all these kids. If you haven't read Charlotte's Web by now, <laughs> talk about public access or you know things that people should know already. I, I did know that the spider died. No, I um. How old is Max? Max is two. So just I, over two. I have a two and a half year old son, and we uh, compare. Notes often in passing in the office. Have you read? You only um, let him watch happy uh, pig movies like Babe. No, no, I. You know he's a big fan of um, old Sesame Street, which mm-hmm. is in thanks to my husband who pulls it up on Netflix because he will only watch with our son things that he can tolerate. Uh, <laughs> and the kid will watch YouTube videos of construction sites, 
for an hour. Really? If I let him. He will, and then he'll go outside and he'll use his hand like an excavator scoop. Oh, does he? He's Good. very imaginative. Sounds industrious. He's very industrious. And I let him start sauteing onions when he was about eight months old. I would like that let him That sounds like them. child labor. <laughs> well, I mean, he's got her in his cape, right? <laughs> but yeah, no, I put pictures up on Instagram and people are like, oh man, that's so wonderful that you let, I could never let my son do that. <laughs> and I feel like if we don't teach kids not to fear food from a very young yeah. age. They fear things. They stuff to fall and somehow the lens, the micro lens on everything, it gets so talked about, talked about that, you know, with some things it's good, like caring for animals and you know a lot of good comes with that and i suppose it's all worth it if some good comes with that kind of stuff but there's also like my kid fell take him to the doctor and right, you're just yeah. like bring it back bring it back right or tell every kid how wonderful they are yes. you know, or like everyone's you know exceptional yes and i have you know and i want to believe that mike of course my kid is exceptional and of course everyone's kid's exceptional but i got a flyer home from the preschool that it was like they were having a sports thing on a weekend for the preschool through pre-kindergarten kids. And it said across the top, everyone's a winner. Well, wow, that's annoying. There's a very funny progressive ad with this actress who does a lot of these. And she's like giving a pep talk. That, so it's good lesson from that where you're like, you can get a Sunday even though you didn't win. And they're like, can I get sprinkles on that? You're like, sprinkles are for winners. <laughs> So they know there's always something missing. Right. And I think, you know, teaching kids humor and yeah. teaching them all this stuff is so much more important than teaching them to be little narcissists yes, who are just yes. perfect the way they are. So People need to work for things. You need to work for things. So the book is short essays that I really, really like the way that it's laid out because you Thanks. don't have to read it in order. Mm -mm. You can kind of, the titles are very telling what you're going to get when, the you know, the title of each essay. Mm -hmm. So you flip to any one of them and it's your sort of... Your voice, your opinions, and I think you give permission to people to be like, yeah, that is how I feel. Well, I think it's not opinion. I mean, the one thing I learned from Carlo is only give things that are sure to be fact, you know, and then that might only be, you know, one sentence about one thing, which is why I think if you try to write chapters that are 50 pages long, there's just so much that could be wrong with it, you know, unless you're super, super smart. So I knew that with my brain and all that, I needed to pull from the things I knew. But I mean, I don't know what anyone could disagree with in this book. <laughs> no, and that's what's great I about mean, it. It makes no radical claims that you know, whether you're old or young or part of the religious right or, or, you know, a communist, these are mainly things that are true. Like you have to eat endangered species of livestock to save them. You know, that poor people shouldn't eat terrible meat. Um, you know, that commodities cut corners and don't last as long as, as things with quality. That so animals are curious you. creatures. I mean, these are basic I want facts. to ask you one about just one like that comes Temple up. Grandin, by the way. She is all fact. There's no opinion with what she says. Temple Grandin's a 100% right on everything all the time, which is why like McDonald's and Burger King follow her systems. Sorry. No, no. I, uh, oh, so the argument that I hear a lot is that we couldn't feed the global population at this point without the commodities, and mm -hmm. therefore they have to exist. Retort. Well, we're only talking about meat, for one. So, yeah, people shouldn't eat uh, commodity meat. And I learned this from Michael Pollan, but the commodity world is not feeding the whole world either. People are starving all over the world. So th what they're not doing is working 
And anyway, that's a very far-off philosophical question. That It's a good question, and everybody asks it, so it's a good one, and I respect it. But it's almost not the right question to be asking. It's not the spirit of, what are we going to do to fix it? It's automatically, right off the bat, asking a question about 100 years down the line, and will it work, and what if it doesn't? And, and, and then we end up kind of vindicating the whole commodity system by being like, thank God you're here, and it's no, they're wrong, and we need to be taking and building different paths, 100%. And if I'm alive, when there is that issue of can we really be feeding meat as much as uh, we are, uh, you know, I would love it if I'm alive during that. I doubt I will be. And by the way, we should be eating less meat. And therefore, meat needs to be more expensive and raised a little bit less. You know, to discuss it any other way is just such a waste. You know, like a CNN, should we eat meat? Shouldn't we eat meat? And then nothing comes of that. Because you don't know, both make some decent points. But in the end, they should be being like, we have a panel of people who are trying to get better meat to be a bigger part of the overall economy in the U.S. And I think chefs on the, you know, in terms of influence, have such an opportunity to be educators. I made a, what, I mean, it wasn't a mistake because I didn't know any better, but one of the very first culinary events that I did as an adult, I started throwing birthday parties when I was a very small child. But (laughs) as an adult, I got invited by a friend who owned a bar to do a local dinner for just like cook out of the back kitchen, sell a couple of tickets for 40 bucks, and mm-hmm. it was three courses with cheese and homemade crackers. And I wanted to serve venison sliders because to me, that's like the ultimate mm-hmm. local meat. It's highly available, it's delicious, it's good for you. Were I, they surprised? She was totally into it. The, the people who bought tickets were totally into it. What I didn't know was I had to buy farmed venison mm. because you can't sell wild game mm. because of the inspector slaughterhouse situation. And right. I felt like. That was such an eye-opening experience to me in terms of like a, f- a flaw in the system mm-hmm. that we are dedicating farmland and water to raise deer still really bothers me. When there's all this. Well, you know, the other side of it is HACCP plans and food safety. When you had tons of local slaughterhouses able to do things, whatever they wanted, and chip across state lines, I think there was a lot more disease and problems and humane issues with the animals so i mean there's that argument like was it better when we had tens of thousands of slaughterhouses in upstate new york and the answer is some good ones got lost but a lot of them were terrible and were you know shooting animals in the back of their yard and you know not necessarily the most humane so it's like a give and take but it's it's very hard. And I think that goes to there's no binary, there's no answer to no. this binary CNN BuzzFeed model Correct. of like, should I eat meat? It's like, that, that's a dumb question. <laughs> but what I would love to see is someone like, you know, and Ted Turner's already done this, and I have a two page chapter of him on the book, is, you know, some billionaire needs to just build four slaughterhouses outside their city. It can be any big city in the country, and then let the farmers come, and you charge them a per pound price to cut it up, and then you can buy it for some little amount of money from them or you can help them get it into the city you know a place like santa fe or phoenix i mean it's not that outrageous to think that that could be done there might only be a hundred good restaurants in that town if that so you know i think it's very very doable but um you know i think there's all this negative energy around investing in slaughterhouses and PETA and all this but you know that'll be much more interesting cnn content when they're talking about guys who've done such a thing or girls 
could the well thank you (laughs) (laughs) sorry no no it's fine uh could you thank you for correcting yourself um is that an opportunity for people to work in groups could the restaurants Mm -hmm. get together and build a co-op slaughterhouse we are working with some farms in upstate that we are trying to get to partner with chefs you know where like a restaurant group could own the products of two other farms yes working in groups it's all about that I mean, so that seems like a doable solution. Yes, that is very that's worthy of being funded. You know, I'm always reluctant about nonprofits whenever I hear food nonprofit. I'm like, oh brother, what is it? And then when you 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 meet like a group like Just Food, which is putting CSAs in all the neighborhoods, that's tremendous. It's so direct and active, and so many people are eating better. So many farmers are delivering their stuff. That is just a powerful, powerful mission. But then for every Just Food, there's 10 organizations that are just disgusting the prospects of what it would be like. But none of those people discussing it are going to be the ones in the van, the ones making the sales calls, or the ones like sharpening the knives. And so it ends up being kind of a waste of nonprofit, of, you know, of taxpayer money a bit. You know, if you're in the sustainable thing, you have to be able to point to some success. Right. And it cannot just be more information. There's a lot of hope, I think, in this area. I, I think that... Um, we made in our house. We made a rule of not eating fluorescently lit four-legged animals anymore. Hmm. And our next, because that was seemed like an fluorescent? easy thing in the supermarket. Ah, so yes. I could buy it at the local butcher, mm-hmm. and I could buy it at the farmers market. But I would. I stopped about two years ago. We really stopped buying convenience meat mm-hmm. when we went to stop and shop to get milk and everything else that we get. Um, this summer, we're going to raise. We're going to try our first flock of meat chickens hmm. because we have successfully stopped. Eat, I'm never, you know, we're not going to raise four-legged animals ourselves, but we can raise chickens ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I've been. Um, they really only have two legs, right? They don't they have little. Have they don't have little arms under their wings. They would. They would be. F- Two-legged and two-armed or two-winged, but not four-legged. Not for four. Sure. They never walk on all fours using nope. their wings. Have you seen a chicken? No. <laughs> did you ever see Arrested Development? Where yeah. They didn't oh, the know? dance. Yeah. yeah. That, well, no one knew what a chicken sounded like. They all thought it sounded like different. I absolutely love that show. If I had to watch one show forevermore, it's that. Or have yeah. you seen Party Down? They're like koodaloo, yeah. and they're like, "That's not what a chicken." Have you seen Party Down? No. Do you have Netflix? Yes. Party Down was a very short-lived, similar kind of cult comedy mm. about a catering company. Oh, in really? LA. Oh, my God. That sounds hilarious. It, for anyone who has ever worked in the service industry, which I would put on the high school curriculums if I was in charge of the world, everyone <laughs> would have to work in some capacity in hospitality before they could be turned out into the world. Well, Alice Waters agrees with you, for sure. Well, that's good. Edible I mean, schoolyards. We agree on a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's it's absolutely hilarious takedown of sort of catering world and that's hilarious. Yeah, it's very good. So the book is Carnivore's Manifesto. What uh, what is the best way for people to purchase this book, Patrick? Well, it's very important that they go to their local bookstores if they must, and they can't go to local bookstores. Still, go to Amazon. You know, just buy it. It's just important that it gets bought. You know, because this book is uh, you know it tried to be a kind of accumulation of all the brilliant ideas of Carlo Petrini's and and then Alice Waters's and I attribute it to them you know but it also some things that I've learned also from other people there's Temple Grandin there's just a, a lot going on and I basically think it's the right way for people to view meat world and it's actually extremely closely affiliated with uh 
um, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. And that because of the cover, I think people are like, oh, he's just going to try to get us to eat meat. And no, not at all. It's absolutely 99% connected to animal rights. And, uh, you know, what really drove this is an anger at what the commodity factory farm system is doing to our livestock. And so through fun and also fact and talking about genetics and feed and all that, this is like basically the only book I think you need to read to be able to answer that question or have all those answers, you know, for when those questions are asked, like you posed me earlier. I want you to know that I am adding it. I have added it to my reading lists for my students and I direct them to it all of the time. I really enjoyed it myself. And I think it's a great resource for anyone who's has any question in their mind about those things that you've raised. So thank you so much. Thank you for this special edition of Sharp and Hot. This is very exciting. And listeners, uh, we are normally on air live Tuesdays at 2. You can get the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and find more about me on sharpandhot.com and on Twitter at Chef Emily P. Until next time, keep playing with fire and knives. Sharp and hot with Chef Emily. Sharp and hot with Chef Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.